Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. This is a speaker meeting. Rebecca will speak for 10 minutes, and then we'll turn the meeting over to our main speaker, Patty, who will materialize here in a second. Go to town. You gotta either put it on or speak into it. Sorry. Stand up. And apparently you stand. Thank you. Ah, that makes me feel much more comfortable. Oh, cool. Hey, my name is Rebecca. I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I'm super grateful to be here with you guys um, tonight. And, you know, I every time I thought about coming here, I've never been to this meeting before. It's my first time here. And I thought about this uh, for the last week, and every time it would pop in my head, I had this voice that uh, popped up right after it, and it said, don't think about it. Um, because when I think about things, I just screw everything up. Uh, and my motto today that I didn't come up with, it was something that's going to me over and over again, is just do the next right sober thing and show up. And so, I'm here. Um, my sobriety date is August 14th of 2013, and I have a sponsor. I have a home group. My home group is Park Street in Alameda. Um, I've worked the steps once through. I've worked the traditions. I'm working the steps again. And because of those things, um, my life has changed, and I don't need to drink today. And what I can tell you about how it was is that you know, I grew up in an alcoholic home, and I don't say that because I think it had anything to do with me being an alcoholic. What it did is it gave me a, an idea about alcoholism, and it gave me an idea that alcoholism was a choice, um, and it made me angry, and every time I saw my family members pick up that drink, it meant that they were choosing that over everything else they loved, and that was their choice. And so when I found myself in the same position, um, it wasn't even something I could swallow. Uh, was something I couldn't believe that I would have rather been anything else other than an alcoholic. I remember being a kid and looking at myself in the mirror and being like, you will never do that. You will never be that crappy of a person. Um, and then I started drinking and I was having fun. And I started drinking probably around 14. And I've heard that people who are not alcoholic can't remember their first drink. And what I can tell you is that I don't just remember my first drink. I remember everything about it. I remember the way I felt. I remember what I was wearing. I remember who I was with. Um, and I remember getting away with it. And I loved that feeling. And I heard it described as by someone else as like, I took that drink and it was almost like it hit my stomach and it was like, boom. And everything else disappeared. And I didn't care how crappy my family was or how crappy I felt in front of other people. It was just this feeling of freedom, and I could do anything. Um, I ran with that, and I had, I, I had a lot of fun. Like, honestly, like, drinking was fun through my teens, even in my early 20s. Like, I had fun, and I just kept chasing that. Um, and then I moved out of my parents' house, and I went to college. And... I didn't have that safety net anymore, and I didn't know how. I'd been with the same people. I grew up in Alameda, and so it was small. Um, and it was new people, and I didn't know how to interact with people, and I didn't know how to go to school, and I didn't know how to be on my own. 
Um, and then I, I found the people who drank like me. And those are the people I wanted to hang out with. And I started having fun again. And I was like, we're just going to keep writing this. And I always had this idea that I'm going to figure it out tomorrow, right? Like, this is becoming a problem, and I knew I drank hard, but I'll figure it out when I'm a little bit older. And when I get the things that I'm working towards, then I won't need to drink so much. Um, that's not how it turned out. And I started, I started getting things that I had, I had always wanted, and I kept drinking through them, and I was drinking harder. And I got a, a job and a career that I really loved, and my drinking continued to escalate. And I was in a relationship with a person I really cared about. And my drinking continued to escalate. And there was a certain point, probably like around my mid-20s. And I knew that my drinking was a problem. And this idea popped in my head. And I was just like, you just have to hide it. Um, and so I did. That's what I did for over five years. Is I hid my drinking. And you wouldn't see me drinking in bars. You wouldn't see me drinking out with people. What I wanted to do was show up for a brief amount of time, go home, and drink on my roof. Um, and what happened in those five years that I drank like that was I started losing things. And they say, I want to say they, I mean everyone in here, everyone I've met, is that, you know, it's fun, it's fun with problems, and then it's just problems. And so what I lost was, is I lost my partner, I lost a lot of friends, I stole from my friends. They disappeared. Um, I had a really close relationship with my sister, and she would call me every day, and she would be like, do you think you can just not drink today? And I would tell her, maybe tomorrow. Um, I lost my career, uh, and I went out and set that on fire. And what happened was I ended up finding myself back in Alameda, living with my parents, um, having a part-time crap job, telling them I was going to work in the morning, crossing the street to the park, going to the liquor store, and passing out in the park, um, like 100 feet away from my parents' front door. And that's how I drank for the last two weeks short of the last year of my drinking. And, you know, I knew AA existed. The idea of getting sober just kind of vanished at some point in my drinking. And I'm not sure when that was. But that idea that I was going to fix it tomorrow, or that I was going to figure it out tomorrow, or that some magical thing was going to drop into my life tomorrow, disappeared. And it was just this overwhelming sense of, like, all these bad things are happening to me. God must hate me. The world must hate me. And, you know, on August 13th, I, uh, I did my usual. I went to the park, and I passed out. And um, my mom had this friend from college, and she had gotten sober I want to say like 20 plus years ago. Um, she had reached out to me. She never talked about AA, but I knew that she was sober, and she irritated the hell out of me. And she was always posting all this Jesus stuff online. And gross. Um, but I knew that she was sober, and I knew that she seemed happy. And I woke up in the park on the 13th, and um, long story short is that I just, like, I couldn't tell myself, and I couldn't do it for another day. I couldn't lie for another day. I couldn't not look people in the eye for another day. And I didn't have the an answer. And so I called her, and I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, you know, I'll give you some numbers of some women in Alameda. Um, and, you know, I'm call. And I ended up going to my grandmother's house and drinking more. And uh, I passed out, and I woke up, and I had my dad there and my grandmother there. And... I thought that they were yelling at me, and they weren't yelling at me. They were just terrified. Um, they were terrified of what I was doing to myself. 
and I just said I'll go to an AA meeting. And so with that, they drove me, they dropped me off at a men's meeting. <laughs> I remember walking in, and I don't remember much else about the meeting other than it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And it was a bunch of old dudes who looked like veterans, and like anyone in the room. No one kicked me out, though. No one in that room said, you need to leave. No one said, this is a men's meeting. I didn't even know what a men's meeting was at that time. Um, I just saw all alcoholics for men. <laughs> this, guy, uh, this guy who has since passed away walked up to me after the meeting, and he handed me a schedule. And he had circled the beginner's meeting at Park Street. And he said, listen, he said, don't take anyone's number here and don't take a ride from me. <laughs> <laughs> so you might want to try going to this meeting and uh, they might be able to help you. And he said, don't drink between now and tomorrow. The meeting was the next day. And, you know, when I struggle with the concept of a higher power, I can say that, like, this happened and I don't know why this happened. And for the first time in over a decade, I just walked home and I didn't drink that night. Um, and I walked into my parents' house and I didn't talk to anyone and I just got in bed. And the next day I went to Park Street and I went to the beginner's meeting. And this woman sat down, she led the meeting, and she, uh, she sat with me after the meeting and she didn't ask me anything about myself. She just told me her story and she told me how she drank and she told me how she used and she told me how she got sober and she told me how she stayed sober. And like for the first time in my life that was a glimmer of hope. And it makes me super emotional because uh, she's not sober today. Um, but she passed that along to me. And she made me believe that it was possible just for a split second, that maybe things could get better. And so that's what I thought, is that things might get better, you know. Uh, maybe these people can teach me how to not make such a disaster out of every day. And what I've, what I've gotten from AA and what I've gotten from the fellowship and what I've gotten from everything from steps and from finding a higher power that I can communicate with is more than I had ever imagined. Um, and what I can tell you about my life today is that sobriety is nothing like I thought it was going to look. Um, I had a list of things that I wanted when I came here, and I had a list of things I would drink over. I have gotten pretty much nothing that I wanted, and everything that I would drink over has all happened. Um, but I don't want to drink today. And, you know, it's a beautiful thing, and it's a challenging thing, and, and it has not been a cake walk. Um, there are moments where I hate AA, and there are moments where I, I hate myself for being an alcoholic. And then I do the hardest thing in the world, which is I pick up the phone and I reach out to another alcoholic. Sometimes. Sometimes I call my sponsor and she tells me to do that. Um, you know, but I don't know. What I've gained from sobriety uh, and working these steps, uh, I wouldn't, you couldn't pay me a dollar amount for. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, my first, I had the same sponsor for the first year, and she was super militant, and she had been to the Salvation Army down in L.A., and uh, she was, uh, I thought she was insane. She introduced, my, her, she introduced herself to me, and she said, I like the type of crazy, and I remember I left, and I called my temporary sponsor, and I was like, this woman's nuts, and she's stalking me, and then I called her like a week later, and I was like, leaving my sponsor, and uh you know, I thought it was her mission to make me cry. 
every time you ask, like the first three months of my sobriety, I was like, this woman just wants to see me cry, she wants to see me break down, she wants to see me be weak. And we were sitting in a car one day, and she said, you know, Rebecca, she said, as long as you do this, and as long as you continue working on this, you'll never have to do anything alone ever again. And I did believe her, but I started crying. So the reality is, it's like, since I've, since I've come into AA, and since I've worked these steps, and since I continue to participate in my sobriety, a little bit every day. I've never had to do anything like again. So, thank you. All right, now I'm going to turn the meeting over to Miss Patty here. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Well, I could talk about this anyway. I'm going to sit because I'm old. <laughs> and, uh, my name is Patty, and I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm also an addict, but I just usually, anymore, I kind of say alcoholic. Um, I, I was born and raised in Washington, in Yakima, Washington. I had a, we had a farm, a ranch. There was no alcohol where I grew up. My parents didn't drink alcohol. I didn't see any relatives drink alcohol. I had a lot of weirdness in my family. And that uh, that made it hard to get sober. And that's the only reason I'm going to talk about my family uh, in that way. And um, in AA, one of, I had to unlearn everything that I learned when I was growing up. And I didn't think that's why... That's what would be needed when I got sober. I really didn't believe that. But one of the things I was taught was figure it out on your own. Don't ask questions. And if you don't know, don't ask. And uh, children are to be seen and not heard. That was like a really... I remember my dad saying that all the time. And I thought, I thought that's not right. But, the, you know, I was a little kid. But I, I remember having inklings of thinking... That's not right. And my parents divorced when I was in the third grade. And when I was little, I was a spunky little girl. I had lots of curiosity in spite of all sorts of weird things going on, like getting whipped with a belt. I remember when they got divorced, suddenly we weren't getting whipped with a belt anymore. So that was good. You know, I like, I go, okay, this, this I can handle. But um, one of the things that that did is it made me not trust people. And I have to say uh, that that's something I had to really overcome over my lifetime. And I do have a lot of trust of people now. And I have a lot of trust of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, especially. Because really, you guys helped me more than you can imagine. You helped me more than my parents did. You know, and I love my mom, and I love my father, too, even though he was the way he was, but I couldn't be around him. But when I was growing up, I did everything kids did when we were growing up. I grew up in, you know, I was born in 1954, you guys, so it's like, I'm like shocked that I'm alive. I really am, you know. Everything that I went through, I I am sometimes stunned by it, or the fact that I only take a... I only take Zocor for cholesterol, and I don't pop pills, and I don't take anything else anymore, and I don't drink alcohol. I mean, I find that astonishing, astonishing. Um, when I was growing up, I, you know, and we were little kids in high school, went to Eisenhower High School in Yakima, Washington, and, 
and you know you would join the clubs you do these different things and I would drink I would smoke a pot when I was in middle school and we would drink beer sometimes and none of that I didn't really like any of that that stuff didn't do that the pot made me stupid. I didn't want to get anything done, and I wanted to. All I wanted to do was eat sugar and eat, you know, eat stuff. And I thought, well, that's not very cool. And for me, it, it just didn't work for me, you know. Until I discovered uppers, you know, that's a whole nother ball game, you know. Um, but at that, and I didn't like beer that much. But I would run around and I, I'd sneak out at night and do all these things and go motorcycle riding with my friends and. I mean, I was just, I just did not, following the rules was not my thing. I just did not want to do that. And, um, and so I would live this kind of double life where I was this really great little student, and then I was this, like, wild child out in my own time frame. And I could do that. And, you know, there was one of the things that was really um, sad about that is I didn't realize that you shouldn't have to live a, a double life. I didn't realize that. I thought it didn't even occur to me that maybe that wasn't a good thing. You know, I thought I was having a good time. And then I went to, um, in fact, you know, at that time, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, when you're graduating high school and all that sort of stuff, I mean, I sang to my class. I, I remember at the class breakfast we all had entertainment stuff and I sang things like needle and the damage done because I didn't want my friends to you know die you know seriously then and that's the kind of thing I was doing and we would you know that you planned a big event at the high school you know for graduation they have a swim party at the WCA YMCA or something like that and I'm the class treasurer, and I plan an entirely different party up in the mountains, and we're having a kegger and rock bands up there, and we have our own generators. I mean, that was the kind of person that I was. And so I was living in these two different worlds. I went to um, college, and my, um, I went to Washington State University, and I actually was interested in becoming a physician which most people who are going to be physicians went to the University of Washington. Um, but they, they did have, like, pre-med and all that sort of stuff at Washington State. So I went to Washington State University, which had – and the drinking age in Washington was 21 years old. I have no idea what it is now, but it's 21 years old. And I understand they have pot legal there now, too. It's like, what the fuck happened there? You know? I don't know. I don't get it. You know, I get, I get clean and sober, and then everything changes after that. They come up with new drugs and all sorts of stuff. Um, but I w so I went to college, and, um, and Washington State University is three miles or so away from Moscow, Idaho, Drinking age is 19 in Moscow, Idaho, and that's where the University of Idaho is. Big rivalries between those two colleges. And what would happen is they would have these free nights of all the alcohol you could drink for the women to bring the men into the bars. And they'd have all this music, and this is in Idaho, and so that's what we did. We would all go over there every weekend and party really hard while I was in college. And I was studying incredibly hard, because I am a good student. I studied incredibly hard, but boy, when it was Friday night, I would go over to Idaho, and we'd be dancing all night and drinking all night. And that I just thought I was having a good time. I really did. I thought I was having a good time. 
I didn't even, I did not even recognize that I had an initially high capacity to be able to drink. I didn't know that. And I didn't know that was a bad thing. <laughs> I used to think everyone else was a lightweight. And I thought, you know, I just thought, what's wrong with these people? But nobody told me, oh, well, alcoholics, actually, that's a kind of a symptom there. But no one, I, no one ever had told me anything about alcoholism, even then. No one had said anything, ever. So I, gra- I went to college. Um, didn't get, I had, a, like, a one-year scholarship there. Then they let me go to, uh, my scholarship finished out, and it didn't renew, so I applied for another scholarship. And I got one for nursing, for nursing school, a full ride. And so I studied incredibly hard, incredibly hard for my nursing. And um, we would go out, and we would go out on weekends, and I met a man who introduced me to scotch. And I like that. That worked. You know, that got me there right away. And so he and I would go out on the weekends, and we would go drinking, and now I was drinking, you know, scotch. And I thought to myself, you know, I can really handle this really good. Can't handle rum. Something about rum would really (laughs) fuck me up, and so I would avoid that. But I drink scotch over here, and I drink a lot of it. You know, I'm not a very big woman, but I could consume a lot of it. And I was like the designated driver for our group, which is not a good thing. You know, as I look back on it now, I'm probably that woman driving really slow at the side of the road when she's loaded. But um, what happened is uh, I ended up graduating nursing school. I did very well at that. And then I ended up typical, I guess maybe this is part of the alcoholism really getting under my skin at that point, I don't know, but uh, got rid of that guy who was a really nice guy, you know, still drinking, met another guy that I used to know years before, and he had gotten out of the service, and suddenly I'm moving to California. I don't know a soul in California, right? Moved down to California, and I'm living in Berkeley, okay? Uh, First we moved... First, we came to uh, San Francisco. I'd never been in San Francisco, ever. And we drive to San Francisco. We are a place called the Oasis Motel, of all places. Some of this may ring a bell to some of you guys. There. And I'm sitting there going, San Francisco sucks. You know, it's a terrible neighborhood. And, I mean, we're basically probably, like, in the Tenderloin at that time. And I don't know what it is. And he's doing something on Polk Street and going to bookstores. I'm going... This isn't panning out the way I really even thought it might be. And so he joined, uh, he, we moved over here to Berkeley, and um, he ended up joining some Yingma Institute in, at the university. And I didn't know what that was, but he spent an immense amount of time saying, <coughs> saying om and doing all of these sort of meditative practices, and, and he smoked pot every day. And I thought, you know, uh, this is just not... And he went to a lot of cheese co-ops. I remember co-ops. There was a lot of buying of cheese. (laughs) And there wasn't... And you couldn't have, like, Oreos. You couldn't have things you like to eat. You know, he wanted to do things. It was just horrible. And I said, I've got to move out. This isn't working for me. And so I did. I moved out, and I was on my own. But I had gotten a job, you know... At that time, they really needed nurses, and I was an ICU nurse from the get-go as soon as I came out of the shoot. You know, I, I love taking care of patients, and I'm really good at it, too. And I, 
you would have to pull me off you not to give up on your life. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way I was in a, as an ICU nurse. And I did ICU nursing for 25 years. And I was a head nurse in ICU and all those sort of things. And, it's, and I am still an, a practicing nurse, and I just love my profession. But at that time, I was... I was taking a I was taking the bus at night in my nursing uniform all in white, my <laughs> stockings, my shoes, cap with the black stripe on it. I mean, I was that one taking a bus at night midnight to go down and work at Merritt Hospital, which is now Altebate Summit Hospital in Oakland. And here I would do this as a young woman. I was like 21 years old, you know, and I was doing the nursing deal, and I was working on night shift, and pretty soon I got to find out who the partiers were on night shift, and I liked that. And there were a lot of nurses that worked with me that were not partiers, but I found the ones who really liked to turn it on, you know. We would get, we would, after working a night shift, uh, you know, for eight hours over a patient really, really sick, Pretty stressful stuff. Great way to burn off that kind of stress was to go down to Spangers. They were open in the morning, and you could have alcohol there. They'd serve you alcohol like that, and I, I'd rationalize that and say, well, of course, you know, I've worked all day. My night, uh, you know, my nights and days are turned around. So of course, that's perfectly fine and perfectly normal to do. Well, it wasn't really normal to do, and there were a lot of people in Spangers who were actually having breakfast. You know, but we were drinking. And so even though I was working, more and more alcohol came into my life. And, of course, then, of course, cocaine became very popular at that time. And we used to think in medicine cocaine wasn't addictive. We didn't think about it too much because we were always putting it down people's noses in order to pass a tube down their nose. Or to do a bronchoscope, we would put pure cocaine down there to numb it up. Lovely, right? Just like and giving them dopamine to get their blood pressure up. You know, you wonder what that does now to the brain. But at that time, that's what we were going through. And you know that also at that time, the AIDS crisis was coming through. We were seeing young people coming through. It was a really tough time in the ICUs because we were seeing beautiful people just dying from different diseases out there that we didn't know what was happening to them. And we were doing our level best to try to help them live. So, And I still kind of take that to heart because I know I lost a lot of really wonderful people with the AIDS epidemic. But I think, um, too, that also helped escalate a lot of stuff for me because I needed, I needed to find a way to comfort myself from all of that in the ICU setting. And, I, and alcohol worked. It really, really worked for me. And so ultimately what ended up happening is, I have a really long story. I'm so sorry, so I better t- keep track of it because i got to get to recovery. Um, ultimately what ended up happening is I got rid of that boyfriend. I'm working with all the other ICU nurses. And, you know, I ended up meeting a man who I really, really liked. He was very artistic. He was in... San Francisco, and we went on a date. Uh, I actually met him first in a bar in, Sa- in Sausalito. Perfect bars, right? Mm-hmm. So I met this man, um, and this was after I had um, 
I'd been sailing and doing all sorts of things on the bay, all this sort of thing. And I ended up, I ended up going with him to his apartment. And he had a large Ziploc baggie of quaaludes, 500 of them, in a Ziploc baggie. And I went, this is a guy for me. You know, I mean, just thinking like that. And I, re- I never said that to him, but I remember there was a lot of cocaine in that relationship. And he was a really heavy drinker, too. And I thought he had a problem with alcohol. Mm-hmm. I really did. I ended up marrying that guy. That was my first <laughs> husband. That's who I chose. And you know what? Bless his heart. I owe him amends. I really do. I can't find him, but I owe him an amends because he didn't have a chance. He never got a wife. You know, he got a drinking partner and, you know, a partier, but he did not get a wife. And so that marriage only lasted about two years or so. And it was really tough because we could not keep enough scotch in the house, literally. And I was always looking at his part in that. Um, but, but by the time, you know, by the time I, when I broke up with him, it was within a year or so I was... Um, I was at a friend's house, and he told, he made a comment to me, um, I cannot stand to watch you like this, um, kill yourself like this. I never heard anybody talk to me like that, but I was sitting there drinking when he had walked in, and that's what he said to me, and that really struck me. I thought, are you kidding me? You think I'm killing myself? And then I had to kind of look at that and go, you know, this guy... This guy, when he says something like that, that's a hard thing for him to say, period. And he really cared about me. And so I told my girlfriends, and I said, you know, I've got to, you know, I need, I need some help. And I need to get this cleaned up. And I'm a nurse, you know. I'm, I don't even know what, I don't know what alcoholism is. I still don't, I still didn't know what alcoholism is. So my girlfriend, who's a nurse, um, I made arrangements to go to Ross Hospital to get sober. And Ross Hospital, I picked Ross Hospital because I, I like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. It was good enough for David Crosby. I figured, hell, I can go there, right? So I go off to Marin, and she drives me there. And they look through my suitcase, and, and I said, what are you looking for? And they said, well, we want, want to remove any mouthwash or nail polish. We don't want you to drink any of that. And I said, oh, my God, am I amongst a bunch of mouthwash drinking, nail polish drinking people? I mean, I had no concept of what that was. And I told my girlfriend right away, right away, I think I've made a terrible mistake coming here. Which she said, no, I don't think you did. And she laughed. And she laughed. Best thing ever she did for me. And she is still a girlfriend of mine to this day. I love her dearly. Because, you know, had she not done that and driven away, I don't know where I would be. Prior to that, I would be going and seeing psychologists and in the, you know, trying, doing cocaine before I went in to see the psychologist (laughs) and spending a lot of money on the psychologist, never once telling him I'm a drinker, never once telling him I use a lot of cocaine, right? I mean, that was a huge waste of time. I get more out of my AA meetings Mm -hmm. here than I do in any therapy on the planet I've ever received, period. You know, I've really been able to find what I need in here. And so when I, um, I got sober, I got sober, I was struck sober. And I didn't, um, after I went through that, I came back 
And they told me, I, I was baffled by where they were taking us during this while we were in Ross Hospital. They would put us in a white van and drive us over to a church. And no one, no one told me. The reason we meet in a church is because that's where Alcoholics Anonymous sometimes rents a room. They didn't tell me that. So I thought, what the fuck? I'm going to a church and, you know, what's this about? And there are all these people around and the basket's passing. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, we're tithing here. You know, <laughs> I just had no clue of what was going on. And then I got out of there and I thought, well, that that's over, right? thought, that's over. And then um, they said, you should go to meetings when you get back. And so I got back, got to back to my relationship I was in, and I went to meetings, and I would go uh, out in Contra Costa because I didn't want anybody to know where I worked that I, that I go to AA meetings. Okay? Mm-hmm. I want you to know today, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I go to AA meetings because it helps me. You know, why wouldn't I do that if it helps me, right? It's like a crazy thought. And so, and besides that, you know, I also used to, I used to, I used to dress incognito and I'd think I would be incognito. I'd tuck my hair into my coat and think that was, people would recognize me if I was drinking at Olivetto's on college. And they'd come right up to me and say hello when I was drinking, you know, it's like, what is wrong with me? And so, nonetheless, I would, you know, when I was getting, it was very difficult getting sober at first for me because, again, asking for help was one of the biggest character defects that I had. And so what um, ended up happening is I didn't drink for 13 years. Didn't drink, didn't pick up alcohol for 13 years. What I did do, though, is... I was working also in a doctor's office where the pharmaceutical reps bring in all sorts of free drugs at that time. They don't do it so much anymore, but they did it then. And they brought in Vicodin, and they brought in Narco, and they brought in Percocets, and they, and they just give you tons of this, and, and Valium, and you know Xanax, and Ambien, and you name it. And I'd go, okay, these are all free. Okay, I'll take some are here over here for you, and some over, I'll take some of that because I'm feeling a little anxious or I can't sleep and, you know, whatever. And I loved Vicodin. I could eat a ton of those things. (laughs) And I didn't, I mean, 10 a day. You can kill your kidneys doing that, you know? I'm a nurse. But I didn't know that, didn't think about that because probably most people aren't taking 10 Vicodin a day. (laughs) So. What ended up happening with me is I, I relapsed, and um, I, did, I did that relapse. Uh, I was working on Telegraph Avenue, and I decided to go all the way to Scott's to have lunch. That's the first indication something was up. There were plenty of places between my work and where Scott's was down on, uh, down on the harbor, uh, to have lunch, but that's where I went because I wanted to go someplace that was unlikely someone else was going to see me, and I ordered uh, Irish. I ordered Bushmills to be put in my coffee, an Irish coffee. Thought this couldn't be any harm, right? <laughs> Wrong. But you know, by this time, I was a married woman. That 13 years, I was a married woman now, a second time. But I had a son now too. I had a son. 
And I love that boy. Just and I still love that boy. That kid is 27, and I just I love him. He's great. And um, what ended up happening to me is once I took that one drink, the worst thing in the ha- in the world happened. Nothing happened to me that first day, but it was the first drink. But I'm telling you, when I took that drink, it woke up everything that my body physiologically knows about alcohol. And that's why I know I'm an alcoholic. Because from then on, it was on. You could not, I could not take enough alcohol in. I was still functioning, but I, I could not, I could not bring myself to go back to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I had stepped away from the meetings way before I took that first drink. That's another thing I learned. Don't do that. Don't step away from those meetings. That's the first sign you're, you're taking your step out there to take that next drink. And so I, um, I, what ended up happening is my son was 10 years old. We were at home. The, I, remember, I remember my last day of drinking vaguely. I passed out in my bathroom at my house. My son was at home. My husband wasn't there. I hadn't made dinner. And I had been drinking alcohol and shooting Demerol, and a lot of Demerol, like 100 milligrams IV. You know? So if you're wondering if I'm an addict, I know I'm an addict. I know I'm an alcoholic. I have no problems with that, because I am, and I have no problems with that. And, I don't, and it's not a moral issue. I know that, too, because I know I'm a really good person. But I know if I put that stuff into my body, it becomes a moral issue. It does. And that's what it does to me. It makes me immoral over time. And so what happened was my husband broke down the door. Um, I was in my bathroom drinking and using drugs. And I don't even, re- you know, I had never not made dinner for my son. Ever. Never. I was a really attentive mother. Despite all of this double life, Nancy Nurse here, Demerol shooting, alcoholic, you know, drinker over here. Same woman, same day. I mean, that's crazy. And my husband broke down the door, and all I remember is him shaking me and saying, you didn't make dinner for Nathan. And and my husband says really strange things when he's under stress. But you know what? That was the right thing for him to say because I had never not made dinner for Nathan. And I went, and I was so out of it, I remember remember nothing else of that day. But when I woke up the next morning, I kind of, I, I had that white light experience that they talk about where I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew I was going to be all right. It was a really weird thing because I should have been shaking and going through a thrall. I should have been in that condition, and I wasn't. And my husband, I didn't know what was going to happen with that either. And uh, what ended? And my husband said to me, "What are you going to tell our son?" And I just took a deep breath and I said. I'm going to tell him the truth. And so I went into my son's room, and I crawled into his little Ferrari bed thing that he had, and I'm laying there with him, and he said, Mommy, what happened to you? And I said, "Um, 
he said, I thought you were going to die. The kid was 10 years old. I don't know that he saw any of that. I just know he knew there was something horribly, horribly wrong, and I was in trouble. And, he's, and he said, what happened? And I said, I, I took drugs. I, I took drugs. And he said, oh, were they street drugs? <laughs> you 10-year-old, bless his little heart. And I said, well, no, but they weren't my drugs to take. And, I, and he said, why would you do that? And I said, because I wanted to feel differently. And for the first time in my life, I heard myself say the truth. That is exactly why I took drugs. That is exactly why I drank alcohol. And thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous because now my husband, my husband called up Ross Hospital to, find, to talk to Dr. I think it's Ostroff to talk to him and say, what should I do? And he said, to his credit, take her to AA. Take her to AA, and I had stopped going to those meetings. So <laughs> off he drives me to AA, takes me to a meeting out in Contra Costa, and he drops me off, and he drives away. There's a lot of people driving away in my story. And so he drives away, and he leaves me at that meeting, and for the first time, and I'd been to lots of meetings, for the first time I heard... That preamble that we always uh, that we always uh, read, which is half measures avail us nothing. I finally heard that, and I thought, well, what did I do that wasn't right? I read the big book once, you know. That's what I, that's what I thought. I thought you read it once and you're done, right? And you, then you sponsor yourself, right? I mean, that's what I was doing, and I was doing the first three steps and the last three steps, and I left out all those. Six middle steps, right? Not a good idea for recovery. And so now when I came in, now now I got the gloves off. I decided, okay, I'm going to do totally the opposite of what my brain tells me to do. My brain is going to tell me, oh, you don't really have to do that. Or, oh, you don't really have to go to that meeting. Or, you really don't have to do that service commitment. Or, you really don't have to answer that phone call of somebody who needs to talk to you. I didn't do any of that. I came right in, took the gloves off, and went to meetings really regularly. I went to meetings in Oakland. I went to meetings in Contra Costa, in Alameda. Anywhere I was, I went to meetings. And I got a sponsor. You know, I remember I was shocked that I was asking her to be a sponsor, and she said yes. And I was even, I was mortified. And then she said, I think we should meet every week. And I thought, well, isn't that a little bit excessive? <laughs> and she said, no, I think that might be really helpful. And we did. We met every day for a week. And, you know, I, she got me into service. In six months, she wanted me to take a service commitment. And so I took a coffee commitment. People were complaining about how I made coffee, and I had to learn how to take criticism. And I I was like, okay, so teach me how to make the coffee, you guys, you know? And so I learned all of these things. And then um, I just want to tell you guys, I've been sober now for, and clean, squeaky clean and sober for 16 years. 16 years. And I just want to say, no, that's really, that's really thanks to you guys. Then you should be thanking yourselves. Because Every t I go to, um, I sponsor women, I go to a big book meeting every week, I go to a step study meeting every week, I go to speaker meetings once in a while, I used to only go to speaker meetings. But for me, I really needed to be in those, in those other meetings so that I would be going over the book and hearing how you guys did it. 
You know, because then when you're sharing about those steps or when you're sharing about what your reading was in the big book, I would start to see how you're dealing with life. And I'm telling you, I was learning from you. You guys gave me a chance to learn recovery better than I learned my alcoholism. You replaced my alcoholism with that. When, As a nurse, when I look in the ICD-9 book for alco under alcoholism, it has reams and reams and pages and pages of all the awful things that happen to alcoholics. There are two things in there that are good. One is abstinence of alcohol as a coating you can use for a patient. And the other one is alcoholism in remission. But all of the other ones are just going. And that tells me, you know, that's what I have to look forward to if I take that first drink. I've had an opportunity to raise my son, to see him go to college, you know, to help my husband, who needs a lot of help, frankly. <laughs> you know, and because I found out when I got sober, I found out my son has ADHD. I found out my husband had ADHD, you know, and I've been with them for a long time. And I just thought, well, you know, I didn't realize that maybe they needed some help with that. You know, and, and I thought I was going crazy. You know, suddenly everybody else was on medication. I'm not supposed to take anything, right? It's like, what's that about? So I just want you guys to know, you know, if you're new, come hard and fast. You have nothing to lose here because it's been an amazing ride. I've had amazing things happen to me in recovery that I could not have predicted in a million years. But it really took me jumping in with both feet. You guys were literally my life preserver. So I thank you for that. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.